Uh, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark that will take us up through Easter. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 1, but just sort of uh, introduce what we'll be doing in this series. Uh, you've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again, because uh, it's one of these sort of um, guiding principles for me, but the way in which we read stories, you know... Um, the way we enter into story, if you think of the gospel as a story, it's just a story, um, tends to profoundly shape our experience and our understanding of those stories. So you've heard me share before about my dad and growing up and, you know, seeing him sit. He didn't read a lot, you know, blue-collar guy, uh, but when he did read, he'd be in his lazy boy reading those John Grisham novels from when I was a child. But he'd always start with the last chapter before going into the first chapter for some reason. I'm not sure why. And as I say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So some of you will remember those choose-your-own-adventures stories. Some of you were Gen Xers, some of you not. But are they even a thing anymore? You read them. So you got those. As, I don't know, maybe you got this from my dad, but as a kid, because I, uh, I never wanted to die in the story, because that's frequently what happens. You just die. You get eaten by a shark or something like that. Um, I just read them backwards, and I try and cheat the story which is really hard to do. It's actually not a really effective way of reading. And what's more, later in life, I think I took this with me into my undergrad experience, um, it's ironic to me that I read a lot for a living, but I kind of hated it. So I took a speed reading class my freshman year in college because I wanted to kind of maximize my fun quotient and minimize my suffering. And so I thought, wow, this is a great way in which to do that. And what I then began to notice is I was actually becoming a really poor reader, like a sloppy reader, so much so that um, my comprehension of what I was reading was not getting better. It was getting worse. I read a quote around this time that humorously tried to explain the follies of speed reading. Maybe you've heard this. It said that I once took a speed reading course and read War and Peace in 20 minutes. It involves Russia. Like, that's kind of what I got from college. So... There you go. This is your pastor. So anyway, like I said, how we read stories has this massive influence on how we understand them and then ultimately the impact on our lives. And like I said, we're starting the Gospel of Mark today, the story of Mark. And one of the gifts of reading the Gospel of Mark, or any Gospel, I don't know if you've ever sat down and read one of the Gospels from cover to cover, like you might a novel. So not, not reading it like a Bible study, if you've been in a Bible study, or a daily devotional where it just kind of pops up in your devotional alongside other things. But actually walking through it as a story is that you're going to begin to notice that in particular with Mark, the narrative divides out into two uh, distinct parts. So there's only 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. It's the shortest of the Gospels by far. The first eight chapters of Mark, which we're beginning in today in the first chapter, are just full of life. They exude life. There's action. Um, Jesus is moving from town to town. He's freeing the imprisoned from the grip of evil. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. He stills the storm. We're going to talk about that story next week. He tells parables. There's action on every page. You can make a movie out of it. I think they, they made a movie about it, right? <laughs> Andrew, you were part of that Jesus story movie, right? And so that was, I think, Mark, Mark was, is based on that. However, halfway through the eighth chapter, the mood kind of shifts, and there you almost feel it. If you're reading it like a story, it's, it's urgent, it's tense. There's almost like a sense of danger in the air. And Jesus begins to talk almost exclusively after the middle of chapter 8 about his own suffering. Uh, he doesn't talk about suffering almost 
any time during the first eight chapters. He starts to tell his disciples that it's not going to be easy to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. That's where that comes from. He repeatedly emphasizes that he's going to die. In fact, Eugene Peterson, he reflected once on the, this abrupt shift in the atmosphere of the gospel of Mark. And he put it like this, that just as Jesus has everyone's attention, you know, you can think of him like the director of a movie, lights, camera, action, just, just as Jesus has everyone's attention, just as the momentum for life and, and more life is at its peak, he starts talking about death. <laughs> like, what a bummer. In the last eight chapters of Mark, Peterson says, these are dominated by death talk which I think is just a poignant phrase when you think about the climate of our culture right now. There's so much death talk right now. Um, and the key is for Mark that the turning point in this gospel, it revolves really around a question that Jesus asks. Uh, right there, Mark chapter 8, verse 29, he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? It's the, almost like the axis on which the gospel turns, almost out of the blue. They're walking along. He's taken to this region called Caesarea Philippi. They've been healing. They've been delivering. They've been, there's been action, action and he's, they've witnessed miracles. And now Jesus stops on the road, and he says, what do you believe about me? Who do you think, how do you, how do you understand me? It's like a pause in the action. This was the burning issue for Jesus. Not so much, not how much scripture they had memorized up to that point, not how good their doctrine was yet, uh, not how well they could preach or minister in his name. He didn't care, it seemed, about any of those things, but simply their understanding of who Jesus was. Who do you say I am? You know, in one of our teaching team meetings, so we gather each week as a teaching team, and that team's actually grown over this last year, so now it includes our associate pastors and others. And Taylor Greer, who's the uh, director of, ministry, of our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, she's part of that team. And she helpfully reframed this question for us. And I, it's really stuck with me ever since. She asked, perhaps Jesus is, is asking us to reflect on who do we need God to be? I really like that because it puts us into this frame. Um, who do you need me to be, might Jesus be asking. Uh, you know, we've traveled this far the narrative of my life is starting to shift. We've been going from town to town. We've been talking about the love and availability of God. It's been all good. But now we're just making this beeline for Jerusalem. This is Lent now. And I'm going to suffer and die. And you have to decide. You have to decide for yourselves if you're going to go with me. Who do you need me to be? I mean, that's as much of a question for you and for me as it is for them. I mean, you might find yourselves here today or maybe you're watching at home and you're filled with doubts about God's goodness. It's hard to believe in a good God these days and the power of God to change broken systems, to end wars, to bring about peace and reconciliation. We just throw these words around and yet what meaning do they have in our world, right? Uh, you find yourself in the midst of a deep fog of discouragement and fatigue after two plus years of Masks and pandemic and all the things. Perhaps you come with new anxiety as you're kind of hearing the news that mask mandates are going to be lifted next week. Or maybe that brings out a sense of hope in you. Like, oh, what's it going to be like to be around people who are not in my family without one of these things on? Remember the day? It's, who do you need God to be in this moment? <laughs> That's the pivotal question that I believe Jesus would want us to consider 
even as we start the beginning of Mark. Remember, how we enter into stories shapes and text, even the pace and the cadence at which we read, the place at which we enter in has a profound impact on then how we understand the whole story. And then on our own formation, um, we're seeking to be formed by this text we call Mark. And so how we enter into that is critical. And so today as we enter in this gospel, we begin with chapter one. It's a story that's commonly known as Jesus' baptism and temptation. This is the beginning of his, his ministry. And I'm going to go ahead and read these for us. And then we're going to unpack a little bit of it together. And as we do, might we, and then let's, might we do this each week, might we ask ourselves, who do I need God to be? Who do we need God to be? And might we, as we journey toward Easter, get more clarity on that question together, okay? So let's read together. These words will be up on the screen for us. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and with wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. Hey, let's pause just one more time and just pray real quick. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that even as we open this ancient story that is alive to us, we thank you that it is asking us questions as much as we're asking it questions, perhaps more. We thank you for this question that you've asked us, Lord, who do we need you to be? Thank you for the freedom and the permission to do so. As we ask you, Lord, who we need you to be, we know you're listening, so we enter in with you, God, Father, Son, Spirit, we ask your word to reveal to us the truth of our lives, and that it would guide us forward in our journey. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So there's a lot of things in this story. Way, I was reflecting. There's like a, this is one of my favorite passages. It's way too much to cover. And so I'm not going to cover it all. In fact, uh, you probably saw little bookmarks. If you came in early, maybe they weren't there, but little bookmarks on the table out there, a couple tables, and they have a QR code on them. Is, these are a reading plan that our, our team developed. So you could read through the whole gospel this Lent, and there's some marked out for you. 
Uh, and I would just invite your reading this week of this text because there's more in it than I can actually get to. Really good stuff. And so if you're in a group or your family or with your whatever, on your own, do some journaling, just reflect on these things. But I'm going to pull out a couple things, just two. Uh, there was three listed in the bulletin, but I often over, overshoot sometimes in my writing. And so I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work, and we're not going to get out of here in time. So uh, I'm going to look at two things, the first and the third in the outline, if you're looking at that. Uh, we're going to look at where this story takes place, the setting. I think that's really important. And then we're going to look at what we hear God saying in the baptism of Jesus. We're going to really focus in on the baptism of Jesus. Okay, so where this happens, the setting, and then what happens, the baptism. Okay. So first, the setting in verses 2 and 3. This is the whole theme of the chapter, actually. You see this articulated throughout the chapter. The theme of this chapter is unambiguously a theme of wilderness. Happens in the wilderness. It's all about wilderness. John the Baptist preaches in the wilderness. The people have to go out to the wilderness to get baptized. After his baptism, which was in the wilderness, Jesus even gets pressed even further into the wilderness, where he's, he's facing, he faces opposition from Satan for like a whole month and more, you know. So that theme of wilderness is permeating this text. And that word, wilderness, is on one hand a very beautiful word. The root of it is wild. I like that because I like the idea that this is not a tame, churchy story. It's exciting. It's fierce. It's something you could make a movie about. I like that. And yet, on the other hand, wilderness is an unfortunate translation. <laughs> Super unfortunate because... Uh, our ears, we hear this word, and if you're like me, I'm wearing this Patagonia vest. I was the leader of our Bethany Wilderness Ministry for a bunch of years. You know me. Wilderness in the Bible is not a mountain landscape. It's not Mount Rainier. You don't go ski there. You don't hike there. Um, it's not a place of recreation. I'm just going to say that. The word in the Bible is the word eremos. It literally is the word for desert. This is a desert, Okay. And so it means it's a lonely and it's a desolate and it's an uninhabitable place, uninhabitable place. Uh, desert is a place, by and large, I know there are exceptions to this, where things don't grow. It's a place, by and large, where people don't go to hang out for vacation. I know there's Las Vegas, but that's a thing. I don't even understand that. But there's a, there's a sense of the desert being a concept, uh, a place of thorns, a place of thirst, a place of hunger, a place where human communities really don't thrive and aren't really intended to thrive. It's a place of loneliness. Uh, and so with all that said, what's important to notice here about this story, this good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it begins in the wilderness, you know, John the Baptist goes out there to preach in the wilderness. People get baptized in the wilderness. I don't know if you all were baptized, but that's a good day. And so something good's happening out in the wilderness. Uh, is that in the wilderness, the wilderness becomes the context in which good news, God is encountered and can be encountered. So in the history of Israel, God is in the wilderness. He's there every day, walking with the people as they're lost. This is one of the great themes of the Bible. You know, Moses encounters God in a burning bush in the wilderness. Jacob wrestles with God in the wilderness and has his life changed. Uh, like I said, Israel wanders for 40 years in the wilderness. They're led by God, sustained by God. They become the people of God. Hagar, you know, one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. Uh, she's this Egyptian slave of Abram and Sarai. Uh, and she's forcibly impregnated in this scheme to give Abram an heir. They weren't able to have children, so they, 
they use Hagar to, to do this. And then she's cast out of their home. Her oppressors cast her out of their home. She's not given proper resources to survive. I mean, she's sent into the desert to die. And, uh, and this is how Genesis 21 puts it. You know, if you look there sometime, don't have to do that right now, but this is what Genesis 21 says. It says that early one morning, Abraham, he took some food and a skin of water. He gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders. You can think of like a little backpack or something like that. Sent her off with her boy, Ishmael. And she went on her way and, and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away. And she thought to herself, I cannot watch my boy die. And then she just sat there and she began to sob. And, and this is what the text says. But God heard Hagar's cry. And the angel came to her. Excuse me. Um, and said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Uh, don't be afraid. God has heard the cry of your boy as he lies there. Lift him up. Take him by the hand. And I will make him into a great nation. And this is the punchline. Then God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well of water. You see, Abraham just gave her a skin of water, enough for maybe a day. And God said, here's a well. And so she went, she filled her skin and gave the boy a drink. Do you see this? This context in which God chooses to meet us, a place of thorns, a place of thirst, a place of hunger, a place of loneliness, and yet God says, it's not so far off from my heart. You know, in her book, uh, Sisters in the Wild, uh, the theologian scholar uh, Dolores Williams writes about this narrative quite extensively. She's an American Presbyterian theologian. She's notable for her role in the development of womanist theology. Um, and she's best known for this book in which she talks about Hagar called Sisters in the Wilderness. And her writings over the years have explored this intersection between race, gender, and class, and how those in particular have impacted black women. And here's what she writes in this story, or in this book. She's in the biblical story, Hagar's experience happened in a desolate and lonely wilderness, where she, pregnant, fleeing from the brutality of her slave owner, Sarai, without protection, had religious experiences that helped her and her child survive when survival seemed doomed. For both Hagar and for many women since, the wilderness experience meant standing utterly alone in the midst of serious trouble with only God to rely on. And so Hagar's story sort of challenges us, I think, is what Dolores Williams is saying. It challenges us because her faith and many women's faith since uh, shows that faith is, 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 is demonstrated in risk-taking. This is a risk-taking faith. Here's a quote. Hagar dared to give a name to God. In a sense, this God is her God and possibly not the God of her slaveholders, Abram and Sarai. No other person in the Bible names God. She's the first and the only person to do this. And so you see the potency and the power of this setting, the wilderness, as a context for our lives and for communities, that faith in God is manifested in taking risks. Which is maybe a way to ask ourselves as we journey in the wilderness... You know, we're not talking about hiking, by the way, just to make sure you're listening. We're not talking about going out in the woods. Those are good things. 
But as you're in the wilderness of your life, are you open to the discovery that there are times and contexts and seasons where you're growing as people? I mean, think about this for a moment. What are the ways in which, this is for some of you, your first Sunday back in a while, or we're just leaning into community here. What are the ways in which this past years of pandemic life and the wilderness that's been, that that's been like for us, you know, it's not the only thing, but what are the ways in which that individually and, co- and collectively has shaped us? Have you reflected on that? How this last couple of years has really shaped your life and not just shaped it in like, ah, it's been hard, but shape, how has God been present to you and transformed you in some ways that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise? Because, see, wilderness is the place where God chooses to make God's dwelling and go with God's people. I mean, did you hear that in Mark's introduction? Verse 3 quotes the prophet Isaiah. There's a voice calling out in the wilderness, Isaiah says, prepare the way of the Lord. There's a, the Lord is in the wilderness. The Lord's promised to be here in the wilderness with us and make a way in the wilderness. You know, it's not going to be all rocks. It's not going to be all uphill. Uh, God's making a way. It may not feel like a straight line to you. It might, have, might feel a lot like a step forward and then two back right now. You know, it might just be really slow going. You're just slogging along through parenting young kids and working and all the things, right? Just kind of slogging. And you got your feet in clay. Um, the way that this might be unclear to you, you might just even not even know what, what's coming next. But it's a way. God's promised to make a way in the wilderness. Some of you guys uh, know the name Rachel Held Evans. She wrote a book just published at the end of this last year called Wholehearted Faith. It came out after her death. And uh, she has a whole chapter on wilderness, if you're curious and you love her books. But she said this about wilderness. Whenever scripture takes us into the wilderness, it's usually not the barren wasteland that it at first seems. So, you know, I talked about thorns and thirst and hunger. I love Held Evans' insight that it's usually not just that. Over and over again, God's people are led to springs that flow with water, and somehow there's enough sustenance that shepherds can then graze their livestock there too. All manner of life are there. Snakes, scorpions, broom trees, owls, donkeys, ostriches, they find their home there. And if the, if the wilderness, uh, if, someone, if you hear a noise there, it's probably the noise of a jackal. There's something there. Even the scapegoat finds freedom there, humility and salvation. So she asked this question, do we call it wild because we haven't figured out how to conquer it, to tame it? Do we call it forbidding not because it's forbidden, but because it's simply foreign to us? We don't understand it. Maybe one of the lessons of the wilderness, Held Evans says, is that is a place where we, can re- we can't rely on the familiar. All of our familiar things have been cut loose, which can seem like a hardship but it just might be an invitation. It's an invitation into the reality of our existence and an invitation into the truth of our vulnerability. Wilderness is an invitation to us. That, that God is present to us. Um, we are called into recognizing that presence. We're invited to understand better who we are, whose we are, that our faith might go deeper. Um, in this good and gracious God.
it can seem like God's not doing much right now, at least globally. It can seem like God's pretty passive. It can seem like even in our own lives that God's not really, you pray and you're like, I'm not hearing a lot right now. And I, and I wonder if wilderness is an invitation to press in a little more and just reflect on, God, who are, who are you? Where are you right now? I don't need a lot of answers. I just need to be reminded that you're present today. So that's the setting, which really informs the baptism. So let's move to that real quick. Verses 9 to 11 here. Um, there's three things happening in this baptism that I want to highlight real quick. First, it says the heavens are torn open. Torn open, okay? And it's hard for us to imagine what's going on with this. Uh, it's not like a tear appears in the sky and this light is blasting through like Independence Day or like one of those Marvel movies. That's something TV and movies have done, right? That's not how this, that's not happening, okay? Don't worry. It's not gonna happen for you. It didn't happen for Jesus. Um, we need to remember as we read this, that heaven is not a reality up in the sky. That's how I think we often even look to the heavens and that's where we think God somehow is, right? If we just get a good enough telescope, someday we're going to see God. It's not true. Um, according to the Bible, heaven is not in the sky. It's actually, this is going to probably blow some of your minds. Uh, I'm not a physicist, but heaven is a parallel reality. Right in front of us, all around us, all the time. That's it. That's heaven. Heaven is right here, right now. Heaven is right in front of us. Though we're not always able to see and discern in every moment heaven, but some of us at some times in our lives are opened to it. Almost like a curtain, if you can imagine a curtain getting parted. Not the sky getting torn open, but a curtain getting parted, pulled back, and we get to bear witness to what God's up to in a moment. You hear a voice. You might see an angel. I don't know. I've never seen an angel. Some of you maybe have. Uh, but, you know, you have these moments. Some of you have had these profound moments of encounter of God's presence in your life, right? Some of you have. And you just know that you know that you know that was, that was God. That, that had to be God. That's heaven. And so in this moment, Jesus' baptism, Mark says this invisible curtain is actually torn. Not just parted and pulled back like we have that experience, but torn. Uh, torn in two. The Greek word is schizo where we get our word schism from, to rend asunder, to split or strongly divide so as you cannot repair it. We've had church schisms, right? We have societal schisms happening right now. It's going to be hard to repair those. That's what's happened here. Heaven is torn open. Interestingly, the other gospel writers who write about the baptism of Jesus, Matthew and Luke, they say that heaven was merely opened. <laughs> They're a little more delicate. I read a commentator about this earlier in the week, and I think the reason that this commentator suggests they do that is to avoid any suggestion that violence was done to heaven. You know, they're good theologians. You don't want to suggest that something bad happened, right? Not Mark. Mark doesn't care. Heaven is torn open. <laughs> That's Mark for you. Uh, maybe he's your kind of guy. It's a word also interesting that Mark uses only one other time. Here and then later in Jesus' crucifixion, when it says that after Jesus breathed his last breath, Mark 15, 38, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Same exact word. Heaven is torn open. And what commentator, commentators are suggesting here in this usage of this graphic language uh, is, is that what, what Mark is trying to do is he's, he's inviting us to think of Isaiah. Isaiah is sort of 
Mark's uh, source text, if you will. And so he's pointing here to this text in Isaiah 64 in which the prophet pleads before God, you might know this passage, Isaiah 64, 1 to 4, to rend or tear asunder the heavens, come down and restore the nation of Israel. One commentator, Kim Huat Tan, he puts it this way, that for Mark, Jesus' baptism signifies God has answered that exact prayer. The long-awaited intimate involvement and restorative action of God has come to pass. Heaven is being torn open. The nation is being restored. God in this man, Jesus, is now somehow present, and by his presence, God is demonstrating that God will be intimately and actively involved in the healing of everything that's broken. And that's good news, right? I mean, that's good news for Mark and the followers of Jesus. That's good news for us. We need broken things to be repaired. Broken systems, broken nations, broken power strokers, broken families, broken dreams. We need healing, right? We don't just need a ticket to heaven. We need heaven on earth. We need healing, right? And that's what God promises us to do in Jesus' baptism, Jesus' baptism is evidence that God's activity, in God's activity in bringing healing to us in our broken world. That's the first thing. The second thing that happens here is the Spirit comes to rest on Jesus like a dove, which can mean that the Spirit either appeared as a dove, so it looks like a dove. It can mean the Spirit descended as a dove does, so the Spirit kind of fluttered. Or, and either of those is possible, but here's the third thing it can mean, It can mean that the Spirit wasn't merely present in the moment, but the Spirit actually filled and entered into Jesus in this moment. The theologian Emerson Powery notes the Greek here actually uses the preposition ice, into. The Spirit went into, not just in the direction of Jesus, but into Jesus. That is, the Holy Spirit entered Jesus, and he became the Spirit-empowered agent of God, who would fight against the evil forces of the world. So Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with God, Father, Son, Spirit. But somehow in this moment, that Spirit that Jesus has been in relationship to for all time needed to enter into Jesus, empower Jesus to be fully Jesus, if you get my meaning here. And that's pretty cool. And that's what baptism, if you're curious about baptism, actually promises to do, to invite the Spirit to fill us more fully. So that's number two. Heavens are torn open. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. And then here's the last thing. Notice what God says, verse 11. A voice calls from heaven, says this, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And if there was a question lingering in this text to this point that isn't answered, it's this question. And and it's now answered in abundantly clear uh, kind of who is Jesus? Remember, this is the meta question. Who do we need God to be? Back in verse 1, Mark calls Jesus the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ, okay? So Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who's going to save, deliver Israel. They're under Roman captivity. He's going to save them. He's also called the Son of God, which means he's anointed. He's chosen. He's elected. He's set apart for a special purpose, Okay? Um, and then down in verse 3, Mark's quoting Isaiah 40, and he identifies Jesus with the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. 
So Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is God. And yet, all those things are true. And what does God say about Jesus? Remember, who do we need God to be? Who do we need Jesus to be? Who does God say Jesus is? You are my son, whom I love, and you I delight. Those are God's words to Jesus. Beloved son, the one in whom I delight. Before Jesus does a thing in this text, before he's said a thing anywhere, and anywhere, before he's gone anywhere, before he's healed anyone, he's beloved, he's cherished, he's a child, he's a member of the family of God. That's the core of Jesus' identity and of his existence. That's what enables him to remain steadfast in the midst of opposition. That's what empowers him to go out into the wilderness and face accusation and criticism from Satan. And then beyond that, for his whole life. That's what gives him the capacity to go to the cross and face suffering and death. It's Jesus' belovedness. This is the center point to which he has to return every day, his beloved identity. This is the driver and the sustainer of his life. You know, another way to maybe put this is, this is the moment into which Jesus enters into his vocation. Vocation comes from this word vocare, vocare, to be called. Some of you are called to a work. Think of vocation as your work. It's not always your, your calling. <laughs> Sometimes it's just what you do. And there's a calling, right? I remember when I was younger, uh, I was at a swim meet. I just clearly remember this. I swam growing up as a kid. And we're at a summer swim meet outside pool in Spokane. And there was this baby getting passed around. We would always sit around between swim uh, races and play cards. And somebody had a baby. I don't know why there was a baby there. But passing the baby around. We're holding the baby. And I remember one of my friends, high school friend, looking at me in this moment, and I'm just a pretty rough high school kid. Didn't have our kids till I was in my 30s. I didn't get saved till I was in my mid-20s. So, I mean, there was some time there where I shouldn't have been holding a baby. And this person said to me, you're going to be a dad someday, and you're going to be a great dad someday. That's, I don't even know who it was. <laughs> but I remember the moment, and and that was a calling. Yeah, I'm a pastor. It may or may not be a calling, friends. I'm not sure. But I know I'm called to be a dad. I do know that. This is the moment in which Jesus receives his calling, his vocation. You get this? Yeah, he's Messiah. He's Christ. He's the Lord. And by the way, those are all true. and They need to be true of Jesus. <laughs> uh, we cannot save ourselves. I'm not saying he's not those things. But at the very core of who he is, it's this idea that he is the son of God. God's son, God's beloved, his child. He needed to know that at the very beginning of his life. You know, this is another way maybe of saying that we talk about this um, during Lent and Advent. Advent, we talk about God with us, right? And Lent, God for us, not against us. So God becomes one of us, God with us. God's not against us. He's for us. God didn't just linger off in a distant cloud, but he came down and entered into our experience. He took on flesh. He bore our suffering. He experienced what each of us experience. And then in entering into our experience and in identifying himself with us, God also desires that 
we be identified with God. God identifies with us and desires that we be identified with God. What's true of Jesus, in other words, is is no less true of you and me. That's why this happens in Jesus' baptism. Many of you know how much I love the author Henry Nouwen, and I quote him maybe too many times. He was one of the first authors I read as a young Christian, and he has a book called Life of the Beloved, um, where he kind of reflects on this story in Jesus' baptism. And he once wrote in another book how Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and God's declaration of Jesus' belovedness formed the decisive moment of Jesus' life. Jesus truly heard, now and says, that voice. And all of his thoughts, all of his words, all of his actions came forth from this deep knowledge that he was infinitely loved by God. Jesus lived his life from that inner place of love. Although he faced human rejection, jealousy, resentment, hatred, those, he remained anchored. Those those hurt him deeply. He remained anchored in the love of the Father, first and foremost. And then now goes on to say this, after much reflection, I now know that the words spoken to Jesus when he was baptized are words spoken to me and to all who are brothers and sisters of Jesus. You know, my tendencies towards self-rejection, self-deprecation, those are tendencies I even have. Now and had, maybe you have. Uh, make it hard to hear the voice of God. But once I've received fully this word for my life, I'm set free from this compulsion to prove myself and I can live in it without belonging to it. Once I've accepted the truth that I am God's beloved child, unconditionally loved, I'm sent into the world to speak and act as Jesus did. And that's what I want to do. I don't just want to preach at you on Sunday. I want to speak and I want to act in my family and in my community and in in the city in which we live as Jesus did. And it has to come from this accepted truth that I am a beloved child of God, a son or a daughter of Christ. I have to receive that. I have to accept it. We're being invited into the waters of Jesus' baptism, which is just a way of acknowledging that, yeah, life's really hard. It's going to continue to be hard. It was hard for Jesus. It didn't get easy. It got harder. It's hard for us. I mean, being Christian, I was telling a member of our staff this morning, being a follower of Christ seems like it doesn't make life easier, (laughs) but it makes life harder. It's hard following Jesus in this world. It's hard to identify as a follower of Christ. It's hard to accept that you're part of the Christian church sometimes. I don't think you need me up here reminding you of the hardship of this and of the life we live. And yet the real challenge, and I acknowledge that difficulty, the real challenge of life in Christ is actually the challenge to listen to and respond to the voice of God. To, as now and says elsewhere, learn to view our lives from above and see and how God sees us and what God says about us. We may, not, we may not do it perfectly. I don't even know that Jesus did it perfectly. But we may not do it perfectly. We might struggle. You might see your lives through this lens of your brokenness. You might just see your flaws here today and, and think, man, if you really knew me. You might have a sense that God is utterly absent from your life right now. 
You pray, you show up, you're reading the Bible, you're doing the things, and nothing is happening. It's a silence. And yet, this story reminds us that God is still speaking. We might need to, like Elijah, slow down just enough to hear that voice. We might need to receive that voice from a complete stranger, sort of like Cornelius brought it to Peter, you know, or the group of shepherds brought it to Mary and Joseph. We might need to receive the witness of God for our lives from somebody we don't even know. It might be through a profound sense of being lost, like Hagar, and then being cared for, deeply cared for, that you discover that you are a beloved son or daughter of God. Whatever the case, I believe, and the reason I'm standing here today, guys, and weepy, is I believe that I believe that I believe that God is speaking love over our lives. I believe that. I don't know about all the other stuff I believe, and that's okay. I don't think you need to believe everything. But, but I want us to believe this. I want to believe this. I want to believe that God is a God of love. What is true of Jesus is equally true of you and true of me. So might we learn, friends, in this season of Lent to rightly hear and rightly respond to the voice of God, to God's inner voice of love. Might we hear the voice of God saying to each of us, you're mine, your life is in my hands, I see you, I'm active in your life, I'm not passive, I'm not distant, I'm right here, I want to part that curtain a little bit for you. And might we, in hearing and sensing God's presence and hearing God's voice of love, learn how to love better? Man, that would be a huge gift if we could be a community during this season of Lent that loved better. If we, Bethany Northeast, were just known throughout the city, like, man, that church knows how to love well. Love each other and love others to rest in love, to relax in love, to just be lovers. So let us be lovers. Let's pray. Invite the guys back up. I'm home. <laughs> I'm giving you a wide berth here, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> You're like a tissue bag. You want to bring one up. Uh, nobody give me uh, handkerchiefs. I had somebody in my previous church give me a box of monogrammed handkerchiefs. I just weep sometimes, but I already have plenty of my handkerchiefs. Let's pray. <laughs> God, we, we love you. Because you first loved us. That's the truth, God. We can love you. We can love each other. We can love because you first loved us. Thank you, God, that you first loved, that you demonstrate through this story first love, uh, preemptive love, love that doesn't hold back and that doesn't wait, doesn't stand far off, that isn't distant, but that is close, that is personal, that is potent and real. 
I love that story of Hagar. She needed to know she was loved. She'd been hurt, God. Some of us have been hurt. Some of us feel really lonely right now, even though we're in community. What her story reminds us of God, what Jesus' story reminds us of God, what the healing, the healer of all those experiences is love. So God, would you just pour your love out on us now as we respond to you in song? Would you invade our lives, God, with love this week? Would you send people, God, Bring us conversations, moments of awareness in which we're reminded we are loved people. Would you give us that capacity, that supernatural capacity, God, to then also extend your love to others? Specifically, God, I want to pray for the the unloved, the people who feel unloved today. Those in our community and beyond our community, might we be agents of love? Lovers, God. Love because, or we can love because you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus. So now we respond to you, God, in worship. And as we do so, God, would you enliven our hearts. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.